Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the Atonement of Jesus Christ as we find greater peace in our lives. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Ben Peterson. And I'm Shiloh Logan. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading as outlined in the Come Follow Me manual of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Well, Ben, last week we talked a lot about Mosiah 29 through Alma 4. And just to recap, we have this fantastic section of scripture where we have been talking about the transition from the Nephite kings for the last 500 years, and now they've gone into the reign of the judges. Alma the Younger has now taken over, and he's been elected as the chief judge, the first leader of the secular government of the Nephites, as well as now he's been put in charge of the church. So now he's the high priest of the church, or kind of like the the president Nelson of the of the of the church of their time. So he's, he's their high priest and he's wearing a lot of hats. And so we talked a lot about his transition and going through war and kind of his foxhole prayer and making deals with God kind of thing. And then suddenly he comes back to his people and realizes that, man, he's, he's got some stuff that he's got to do. He's got to change focus. And then now he's a missionary. Yeah. We've, we're seeing different stages of Alma's development. And as we discussed the character development of Alma is more detailed than any character in the Book of Mormon, I would say, uh, Alma the Younger. We get a lot of the story, you know, life story of a lot of the other prophets, particularly like Nephi, but we don't actually see this character development and perception change and experience in the exact same way. Alma the Younger, when we first learn about him, he's just this knothead kid that's going around causing all kinds of problems. He repents. He gains a lot of notoriety among the people to the point that he's elected chief judge in addition to being um, high priest of the church. So we we phased from the rebellious Alma to the sort of executive Alma, right? The chief judge Alma. And then he kind of goes through another change there after he has these wars and contentions. He commits himself completely to the ministry. And so then we have the missionary Alma. And that goes from, you know, probably about chapter 5, we would say, through about chapter 35. And so here in chapter 5, we're beginning this missionary Alma, this ministering Alma. And it's a very interesting way for him to begin teaching the people and the the themes and topics that he addresses to look at them in the context of what has just happened to this people, this major war that they just had. Yeah, I like what you're saying there. This, you know, it's it's fascinating how the Book of Mormon is written, and I, I probably talk about this quite quite often. But there is a whole philosophy with how the chapters have been created and how the verses are laid out and how. 
that really informs how we come to these chapters. There's nothing wrong with how they've laid it out, but for instance, when the very first edition of the Book of Mormon came out, there were no chapter distinctions or verse distinctions. It just, it was all one great big book, and it read like a big book. And over the years, they have segmented off the chapters, and they've largely followed it by themes and by doctrinal themes. And so, for instance, in our own church reading, whenever we go to Sunday school, we are reading thematically. So, for instance, when we're reading chronologically, whenever we get to Alma 32, well, that's going to be the Sunday that we talk about faith. Or whenever we get to First Nephi chapter 3, that's going to be the Sunday we talk about courage and obedience. And whenever we get to Moroni 7, well, that's going to be the day that we talk about charity. And whenever we get to Second Nephi 9, that's going to be the day that we talk about the atonement. And so there's nothing wrong with speaking thematically, but we have to recognize that because of the way that it's broken up on the chapters and because of the way that we talk about these things in church, there's also other ways that we can talk about the scriptures and to analyze the scriptures and see the scriptures that transcend the way that they have been presented to us on the page. And so you can actually create different ways of formatting the text that will also bring other meanings out. And sometimes by formatting it the way that we have it, it'll actually diminish other ways that we could have seen that. And one of the ways that it is diminished, and again, there's no criticism here because you have to pick a level of analysis to teach from, right? and it's perfectly fine to teach it that way. But one of the things that is sometimes lost in this process is this ability of creating and identifying story and character arcs across chapters and even entire books. So, for instance, in chapter 5, we see in verse 11 that Alma is starting to invoke the story of Abinadi again. Well, this is not by mistake. This actually means something, and Alma is pulling that entire story of Abinadi in to their understanding into what he's talking about. And so we have this entire story arc from the Abinadi story, because we have to ask ourselves, why did he include the Abinadi story? We have a, a thousand-year Nephite history. And this is what we get. Why are why these stories? Why why is it crafted in this way? Why was Mormon crafting the narrative? And what was he he saw our day? What was he trying to show us in the stories that he wove together? And sometimes he he goes back, right? So he he's not always just going through things chronologically. Sometimes he steps back in time and catches us up on another on another happen, happening going on in a different part of the land. So. And one of the ways that we see this is that Alma 5 is very much a chain, or a link in the chain between stories, and it brings a lot of things together. So, for instance, we know that Alma has just been through a major conversion process. He was a not-so-good young man and going out and trying to pervert the church and to destroy the church and to do bad things. He Then he saw the angel, he repented, and as you said, now he is coming into his own moment, his own uh, kind of executive moment. And in that way, he sees his people and the depravity of his people, a thing that he's never been in charge of before. And he doesn't know what to do. And so he's doing his best with figuring out how to get the people out from underneath the burden of possibly leading themselves into another war. He's already seen in chapter 4 the contentions of the church in also going in and creating new problems for themselves and for the non-members who are, don't belong to the church. 
And so all of a sudden that makes a whole lot more sense when Alma comes out here and he starts invoking the stories of that have happened in Mosiah. He's like, do you not remember the stories of my father that have been taught throughout all the land, basically, of how they were brought out of bondage? So this starts in verse five. And behold, after that, they were brought out of bondage by the by the hands of the Lamanites into the wilderness. And I say unto you that they were in captivity. And again, the Lord to deliver them out of bondage by the power of his word. And we were brought into this land and we began to establish a church of God throughout this land also. So now Alma is now going back into this story. This is this is really important what Mormon is doing. He's he's really going back as a historian and really laying the bedrock of how the church was established because obviously this narrative of who and what the church is and the and the part that it has to play in their history and and for us in our own history he's going through and starting to give the foundation of legitimacy for why this church exists in the context and what the purpose of it is and how it's supposed to affect and change our lives. And I like how he calls the remembrance to these things, you know, saying, look, you've been in really bad situations, or the church has, or your ancestors have been in really bad situations. And what was it that got them out of those situations? It was the Lord. It was their trust in him, their faith in his word. And when they put their trust in him, he delivered them. And when they didn't, they had a lot of problems. And so here in the land of Zarahemla, these people that have just experienced this huge war with the Amlicites and Lamanites, well, why did they fight that war? Well, their reason for fighting the war was because they were afraid of being brought into bondage. They were afraid of being ruled over by Amlicite or by being conquered, of being conquered by the Lamanites. And here Alma is saying, look, Hey, we've experienced this before, you know. People of Alma, they were ruled over by Amulon, right? The wicked priest of King Noah, who was in league with the Lamanites. So that was kind of an an Amlicite type of potential situation. We had, or the people of Limhi, they were completely subject to bondage, you know, conquered by the Lamanites, essentially. So we have people that have experienced this. They were in bondage. How did they get out of it? They didn't get out of it by fighting a war. How did they get out of it? They got out of it by humbling themselves and putting their trust in the Lord. And he delivered them. And that's exactly the narrative here that he's reminding them of. Guys, don't forget, this is how it's done. Not the other way. Look at all of the destruction that we've just experienced. And that was not the way that the Lord had for us. There's another way. And what's the way we need to change our hearts? So here Alma delves into this great spiritual heart surgery that we call Alma chapter 5. It's kind of like the Mormon version of sinners in the hands of an angry God. Did you ever read that? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, it's not that intense even, actually. But, you know, Alma really gets in here. I mean, there's tons of question marks in this chapter. He really, it's this introspective, Ask yourself this question. Look at yourself. Lord, is it I? All those types of things, right? You know, really look at who you are. And if we, and if you can fix who you are with your faith in Christ, you can deal with that. Then these societal problems that all seem to be plaguing us all the time, you're going to be able to deal with those 
much better. Yeah, I love that. My daughter once approached me when we were reading scriptures, and she's like, Dad, wh- why are we doing this? She goes, what, what importance does this have to my life? What am I going to do with this scripture, st- studying the scriptures? I mean, I'm, I'm not going to be able to go get a job with this stuff. I'm not going to be able to go out and go live a life and take care of myself with, you know, because I, I talked about the scriptures early in the morning one time. And she says, and, and you know, like if someone broke into our house one time, what am I going to do? Like, like show them the Book of Mormon and then the robber's going to be like, oh, I see your point and walk away. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I... <laughs> And I think in a lot of ways, that's what's going on here is that Alma is looking at his people who have real life practical problems and they are having real life practical persecutions and they are looking for solutions and going out to fix that and to know how to change it so that they're not in conflict so they can establish some kind of external peace, if not an internal peace as well. And so really, there's a couple things here going on. It's almost like it's like, remember the source of your deliverance. Remember the source of deliverance that has always been for our people. Because I can almost imagine the people here saying, like, you think God is going to, like, magically send people here to, like, deliver us from these, these, these things? Like, these are real life practical problems. It's like today with, with COVID or with, with China or with Russia or some kind of Cold War or an enemy or terrorism. And we're like, what, you think God's going to do anything? We have to go out there and to do things ourselves. Like God only helps those who help themselves, right? So we got to go out there and wage these wars. And we got to go out there and to take care of our own business. And Alma is coming down here and, and he's bringing this message that the reality of the physical world is that there really is no distinction between the physical and the spiritual. We're not, we're not these separate beings that we can like just take one part of our lives and, and, and decompartmentalize it from another part of our life. The physical and the spiritual are one. And I think as a culture, we've really done a disservice in really making those two things separate when our experience of them is really hand in hand. And I think Alma is really trying to pull this out with these questions, like in verse six. And now I say unto you, my brethren, you that belong to this church, have you sufficiently retained in your remembrance the captivity of your fathers? Have you sufficiently retained a remembrance of his mercy among suffering towards them? And moreover, have you sufficiently retained in remembrance that he has delivered their souls from hell? And it's like this weird switch that Alma's making, right? Because they're talking about going into physical battle and having physical deliverance. And Alma's now flipping the script into the spiritual. And he says, well, behold, and, and he connects it. Because all of a sudden, the spiritual doesn't seem to have any practical application to the real world. And he says, Behold, he changed their hearts. Yea, he awakened them out of a deep sleep, and they awoke unto God. And behold, they were in the midst of darkness. Nevertheless, their souls were illuminated by the light of an everlasting word. And they were encircled about by the bands of death and the chains of hell, and everlasting destruction did await them. And now I ask you, my brethren, were they destroyed? Behold, I say unto you, Nay, they were not. And again, I ask, were the bands of death broken, and the chains of hell that encircled them round about were they loosed? And I said unto you, Yea, they were loosed. And their souls did expand, and they did sing the redeeming. They did sing redeeming love, and I say unto you that they are saved. And now he's talking about the the spiritual salvation. He's now getting into that, making that spiritual world applicable and practical to our real world, and and, and showing that they're really not uh, they're really not two things. They're really one and the same. Yeah, and I think the people might have a question when they're listening to him. Wait, are you talking about me spiritually changing? And these spiritual chains being taken off? Or are you talking about like literal bondage being taken away? 
And the answer is both. Because right. that is the story of the people of Zenith and Noah and Alma and Limhi. That's the story, is that they are not really separate things. Um, that the Lord first delivers us spiritually from bondage and then can deliver us physically from bondage. But they are not ultimately different types of things. Um, and, and this is interesting because then in verse 10, he says, and now I ask of you, on what conditions are they saved? Well, how, how could a lot of people answer this question? Well, they had bigger bombs. They had better swords and better armor, right? This is actually commented by, by Mormon later, you know, that the, the Nephites were more powerful because they had better armor than the Lamanites. But uh, here, what does Alma say? What on what conditions were they saved? Not because they had smarter military commanders or better weapons. He says, yea, what grounds had they to hope for salvation? What is the cause of their being loosed from the bands of death, yea, and also the chains of hell? And he goes on and, and talks about Abinadi. He says, is according to their faith, mighty change wrought in in his heart, speaking about his father Alma. And verse 13, And behold, he preached the word unto your fathers, and a mighty change was also wrought in their hearts, and they humbled themselves and put their trust in the true and living God. And behold, they were faithful until the end, therefore they were saved. Okay. In other words, what saved them was their faith, their humility, their willingness to obey the commandments of God. Yeah, I love there in, in 12, and according to his faith, there was a mighty change wrought in, in his heart. Behold, I say unto you that this is all true. He was like, how, you know, how does God change society? How does God change civilization? How does the gospel literally transform and trans, transcend the world that we're living in? And it's by changing the hearts of the few. You know, when I was in uh, political science classes at BYU, there's one one class I remember talking, and they brought up that for every successful revolution that has ever happened, most of them only require about two to four percent of the population to actually rise up to do anything. Like we talk about re social revolutions and cultural revolutions, we don't need a majority, like 51 percent, to go out and to march in the streets and to change things. Literally, it has always only ever been 2 to 3% of the population. And what's fascinating is here in the United States, we are literally sitting on a, a total population of around 330, 340 million people. Well, it just so happens to be that that's, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints comprises about 1% to about 2% of the population. About 2%, I think. Yeah, we're right about 2% of the population. And if every single Latter-day Saint who professes faith in this church were to actually live by these things, there would be a revol cultural revolution overnight. If, if we truly believed in, and doubled down on these things, and we truly were so introspective in the way Alma is asking us to be introspective, if we were truly coming into it, he says, Now I ask you, my brethren of the church, have you spiritually been born of God? Have you received his image in your countenance? You know, I love the, the phrase, I think it was from Voltaire, who, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing it, but he, uh, he says, in the beginning, God created man in his own image. And man, being a gentleman, has tried to repay the favor ever since. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in, in, in other words, God makes us in his image, and we're now trying to make God in our image ever since. 
we we put and we project onto God what we believe. And we put God into a box and we and we put him into the box of our culture, we put him into the box of our dogmas, we put him into the box of things that make us feel comfortable. And then we don't ask him to change our hearts. We just ask him to give us some laws of compliance that we can possibly be justified by the law. But the scriptures teach us we can't be justified by the rules because we're going to fail. You're never saved by the law. And so Alma is coming along here saying, listen, are you truly becoming introspective enough of your own soul that you are, you are getting down and trying to fix what is, what is there that you perceive needs fixing or to just identify and to be able to sit with the divine in these moments? That next question he asked them, have ye experienced this mighty change in your hearts? In other words, how were they delivered from bondage? By their hearts changing. And if you don't do the same thing, you are headed for bondage. I don't care that you just won two wars against the Lamanites. You are headed for bondage unless you change your hearts. It's going to happen. And so here he goes on. Um, saying you need to get an eternal perspective, right? Sometimes people are so tied to the fear of death as death being the worst thing that can happen to you, right? And I think that if if you're creative enough, you can think of something worse than death pretty quick. There's a lot of things worse than death. Um, in any case here, he says, do you exercise faith in the redemption of him who created you? Do you look forward with an eye of faith and view this mortal body raised in immortality? That's a very interesting question to ask them. Again, still in the context of this war where tens of thousands of people have died. To ask them, you know, are you really so tied to your present existence that you're not having an eternal perspective about things. Right, and you can see that Alma's probably new to this as well. I mean, Alma was making deals in the middle of war to preserve his physical existence. Right. And I, and this isn't the first time this has happened. Jacob does this uh, in in 2 Nephi in his in his first sermon from chapter 6 to 10. He does the exact same thing. He's, he basically comes down to the people who are afraid of the Lamanites. They just made Nephi their king because they were afraid of the Lamanites. They needed a king to protect them. And Nephi fashioned swords after the manner of the sword of Laban. And thus begins the, the war-making machine. And in this, Jacob comes out and he, and he basically says, Guys, stop being afraid of death. Stop being afraid of leaving this estate. And then he even talks about the Savior that... Even God is going to make himself flesh, and even God is going to die. If God is going to make himself flesh, and even God is going to die, so are you. What are you afraid of? What is this fear of death for those who have an eternal perspective? I love this, where he starts coming into pulling it into the physical in verse 16 as well. I say unto you, can you imagine yourselves that you could hear the voice of the Lord saying unto you in that day, Come unto me, all you are blessed, for your works have been the works of righteousness upon the face of the earth. So Alma's making that works of flesh. He's, he's turning this into a practical, real, everyday solution. He's, he's bringing in the, the, this dualistic concept of spirit and body, and he's making it one thing and saying, listen, as an eternal entity, as an eternal entity, there's nothing to fear. Why are we so afraid, and why do we have to try to preserve the flesh so strongly? 
when the real so, the real solution here, the real point, is to really rely on the Spirit to change our nature, to change our hearts, and to be able to enter that sphere and that presence with the Lord. It's absolutely beautiful. It is uh, all this introspection, right? I mean, you could you could just sit here and read these questions to yourself to really self-examine and say you've been living your life as if you're the righteous people because you're the Nephites and the Lamanites are wicked. You know, back to what Jacob says about how the Nephites treat the Lamanites as if the Lamanites are trash, you know. And here uh, Alma says, can you really, really think about how you compare to God? Think about how you would talk with him in his presence. Can you continue to lie to yourself and to God about who you really are and what your real desires are, what your heart is really like. Are you prepared to acknowledge that your heart really isn't what it should be? And what's so amazing about what Alma understands about this, because he's experienced it, and what he teaches the people, is he says, as soon as, in the very moment that you recognize that your heart isn't what it should be, and it could be something else. It could be what Christ wants it to be. That's the change. In that moment, all of a sudden, the Spirit can make that change in your heart immediately. And you can turn your entire perspective from worldly pursuits to following Christ. That, you know, that's what Alma experienced, right? Alma the Younger, in that moment of pain, when he turned to Christ, immediately he was able to see things in a whole new light. I love that. There's there's one thing I remember talking about in uh, in teaching seminary that we talked about quite a bit is on the iron rod that it doesn't matter how how many steps, how many days, how many weeks, months, even years it, that we have spent since we feel that we've let go of the iron rod and have wandered into mists of darkness. It, it doesn't matter because the distance back to the iron rod, no matter how far we've been gone, is one choice. That that's that's the distance back to the iron rod, no matter how long it took. And I love that what you said, just that just that transition of heart and letting the spirit take place is what he's talking about. It's just it's that fast. This do, this doesn't mean to the, it needs to take years and decades to be able to get to a place. It's that one transition. It's just that single transition, and and it's like and it's we're there. It's amazing. Yeah, and it's not the the there doesn't mean that you are a perfected person. The there means that you are a repenting person, and that's what the scriptures call righteous. Right? Righteous doesn't mean perfect. Righteous means repenting, humble, and that that's why Alma is such a great example of righteousness. Not because he's perfect, because he's always repenting. And uh, and so the, the best question that I've always loved about this whole chapter is in verse 26. Um, and now behold, I say unto you, my brethren, if ye have experienced a change of heart, and if ye have felt to sing the song of redeeming love, I would ask, can ye feel so now? In other words, okay, you did that yesterday. Have you done it today? Have you changed your heart today? Because you've slept since then. <laughs> and I, I just like that concept, you know, that it's a it's a constant checking of ourselves. You know, in skipping towards more towards the end of chapter five in order to come forward, 
Then I know that we had talked about the the connection between Alma 5 and the Beatitudes. And right, right, right now, I, I'm on a really big Beatitude high. Um, it's really been an aspect of Christ's doctrine that I have glazed over and have ignored. It hasn't meant anything to me in my life. Um, they just seem like, you know, just happy little platitudes that God gives, you know, you know, Poetry. a couple... Yeah, like poetry, Jesus right? Poetry. It's, yeah. It's like, yeah, it's like Jesus is like taking a shot in the dark of a few virtues, and he's like, hey, here's a couple of different virtues, and if you uh, if you're these couple of virtues, then hey, you're gonna be happy, and you're like, yeah. all right, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but I, well, I here's really a clue. Take... if Jesus said it, it probably means more than that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right, well, point taken. Kind of, you so, know, I mean, kind of like if Isaiah said it, it probably means more than you know just the words and just taking a little bit of time and i i want to go over the uh, we're going to go over the beatitudes in several of these podcasts over the many months and this and others but just to open it up a little bit for the discussion here for chapter five's purpose the beatitudes are found in two places well at three places it's in luke um, as well but uh, not as in depth as matthew but the matthew telling of the beatitudes is what is also found in third Nephi. And so we really get a Matthew version of the Beatitudes uh, in the Book of Mormon. But from Matthew chapter 5, which is where the Sermon on the Mount begins, the Beatitudes take precedent as the preamble to the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, or Christ's most robust sermon, and the Beatitudes becomes the, the preamble by which the rest of the sermon is contextualized. When Christ first went up to preach the sermon, he goes up to a mountain, which is always symbolic of sacred holy places. We draw comparisons between mountains and temples all the time. And then he goes up there and he sits, which is an ancient custom to, you know, of a teacher sitting, which now he's ready to instruct. So Christ is leading us to almost a temple-type situation where we are now in a real ritualistic, like a benediction kind of prayer. It's It's a really interesting formal setting. And the first thing out of his mouth is he starts talking about these virtues that bring blessings. And what are, what's fascinating about the Beatitudes is that they are all systematic, which means that there's a reason why the first Beatitude is first and the second Beatitude is second. There's a reason why the third and the fourth follow from that, because each one builds on the one before. And so once we understand what each beatitude is supposed to be and the description of what the consequence of that beatitude is, we begin to see how this unfolds. And man, Ben, I'm, I'm seeing the beatitudes literally everywhere now where I didn't see them before. And it's like the whole message of the gospel can be summarized in these eight beatitudes. So not to go over the whole beatitudes, but just to take the first four at a time so that we can use this as a framework to then go back over into Alma 5 so that we can try to see a little bit of what Alma is getting at with, with some of the things that he's talking about. We'll just go over four of these Beatitudes out of eight and, and show what the associating descriptive consequence or blessing is associated with these things and then show how there's a, a systematic process. So here Christ goes up to the sacred place. He turns around. He sits down with his apostles, as was customary for a teacher to do in a sacred, in a sacred kind of a prayerful manner with his disciples. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, 
for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. All right, so just a little bit on these. Poor in spirit. So to be poor in spirit is this this really interesting discussion of poverty of spirit. In the the New Testament, there's really two versions of poverty that are spoken of. One is a form of poverty where you are just working day to day, hand to mouth, to where if you work that day, then you eat at night. So you only eat once a day. You only are paid enough to really get one meal a day. So literally, you're just working all day long so you can eat at the end of the day so you don't starve to death. And you're never getting ahead of anything. You're never providing for anything else in life. You are simply literally living one meal at a time. And then there's another type of poverty that's even worse than that. It's a type of poverty that that you are so disabled in every possible manner that you have no ability whatsoever to even go out to earn your daily bread. You can't you can't even go out to do that. You are completely beholden to charity or for people to simply have charity on you or to help you in a moment that you you can't do anything for yourself. Destiny. And so when you're completely destitute, right? So this is the type of poor that it's talking about. And this type of poverty of spirit is really trying to show that um, some scholars have called this the emptying. It means that through our experiences and our beliefs and our and our interactions with other people and how we have how we've chosen to handle certain situations that we have formed certain belief systems and structures about how we interpret and how we create expectations and how we inform ourselves and our identities in this life. And what this poor in spirit is, is it's, it's supposed to be an emptying out of our complete ego. It's supposed to be an emptying out of all things that we think we know so that we are complete and absolute empty vessels in coming before the Lord. We don't come before God with any pretension whatsoever with any expectation, we don't come to God with anything. We have completely drained from ourselves everything that we find is of this earth, that temporal view. So like when Alma is talking about this temporal view, he's talking about this earthly view where people are scared for and want to preserve their lives. This is the kind of temporal view that Alma is trying to get people to purge from themselves. Now what happens is that this is the t- character of someone who immediately inherits a kingdom. And so Matthew is is engaging a little bit of, of rhetorical poetry here where he shows that the recipient is so stricken in spiritual poverty, but their blessing is that they inherit an entire kingdom. And so now they are heirs, they are participants, they have been brought into a kingdom. They they are they, they've drained themselves from everything. But when we start to face the crisis of letting go of our ego, and our ego never wants to die. Our ego will do everything to stay alive. And when we try, start to drain that ego out, there is a literal loss of identity that goes along with this. And in that process, there is an inherent mourning and sorrow that is accompanied with this. And so it happens almost immediately. So when, as we empty and leave behind old patterns of life and old, old habits, old ways of thinking... In a lot of ways, there's a lot of times we, like Lot's wife, we look back, we yearn for what we are leaving behind, and there's a mourning there. And God is saying, listen, don't mourn over this, you, you will be comforted. We will comfort you. So there we stand as empty vessels who are mourning what we had before, 
And we cannot help but in this moment be at the behest of the elements around us. We are disarmed from all things. We have no defense for ourselves anymore. Our ego is gone and all of our defenses to defend our ego are gone. In that state of helplessness is the pure sense of humility where we realize what we thought we were and what we are no longer anymore. And that is the state of meekness where we now realize that everything that we thought we were before is gone. And when we realize that we've been emptied and purged from all of our earthly, natural views, inheriting the earth becomes a process by which we finally feel that we have a place of belonging. We finally feel that we have a place of one, of a unity with God in this sphere upon which we really had no place before. And just like Enos, once that has gone out from us and our sins have gone out from us and that ego has gone out from us in the state of humility, all of a sudden we want, we want to be filled with something and we turn to God and we, and we're like, fill us and we hunger and thirst after righteousness to be filled. And he says, you will be filled. And that's when God comes. And anyway, the Beatitudes go from there. But for Alma, this is fascinating, um, especially in going to Alma chapter five, but in verse uh, 51. And also the spirit saith unto me and crieth me, crieth unto me with a mighty voice saying, go forth unto this people and say, repent for except ye repent, ye can no wise inherit the kingdom of God. Well, in Beatitude language, what do we have to inherit the kingdom of God? It's to be poor in spirit. And so repentance and being poor in spirit become um, synonyms where we're saying the same thing. And I absolutely love, just absolutely love, it's my favorite uh, definition in the Bible dictionary, but it's the definition of repentance. And that's where it says that repentance is the Greek word of which this is the translation denotes a change of mind a completely fresh view about God, about oneself, and about the world. To have a completely fresh view, it means you can't fill full vessels. And if we are completely full of the natural man, there's no room in us to be able to fill us with the things of God. So there has to be a repentance process, that symbol, symbolic of going down into the grave and into the waters, the, the waters of chaos, the waters of oblivion, the waters of destruction, and it leaves the old person behind and what comes forward is not the old person, but clean. I mean, I, 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 just that symbology of baptism is a death. It's a destruction of the old person. It's not like the person goes down and comes up out of spiritual bleach water and is all of a sudden white. It means that you go down into the waters of oblivion and into chaos and you come out a new person, ready to be filled. And so, man, when, when Alma starts talking about this whole kingdom of God, king, kingdom of heaven stuff, and to repent to get there, Man, that's just sending up a lot of, a lot of really great uh, uh, connections into the Beatitudes. Well, I love how that poor in spirit is the beginning of that repentance. But I see those first four Beatitudes as what we might term the repentance process. I've always had a little bit of a beef with the you know checkbox list of how do you repent, right? You have to do this, do this, do this, do this. I like. Christ's version better. <laughs> you have to be this, be this, be this, be this, right? And that poor in spirit mourning. I mean, how is mourning not part of repentance? Absolutely it is, right? The loss of that previous thing and the recognition that 
the fact that you were holding on to that means that you missed out on so much of what you could have had because you were tied to that, right? So there's that that mourning for that loss, not just of the thing you're you're giving away, but of the time that you lost by holding on to it in the first place. And and then that meekness absolutely required for repentance. As soon as that happens, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, just like that example of Enos, it's a great example because he really describes how he felt in his prayer as he repented, that then he hungered and thirsted after righteousness. Well, what was one of the definitions of righteousness? Repenting. And so once you've gone through this process, you hunger and thirst for more, right? You want more of that because you want more of that emptying, more of that mourning and more of that meekness because what has it done it's brought you closer to god it's filled you with the love of god and so that's what alma has experienced and that's what he is really um, admonishing these people to do empty yourselves and mourn the loss of what you um, of all the things that could have been but then Humble yourself and seek righteousness and you will be filled. And that loss will no longer be a loss anymore. It won't matter. It will be gone. It will be filled with the joy and the love of God. Um, I, I, I love how that fits into this sermon of Alma. Um, you know, Joseph Smith just guessed that really good, didn't he? <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah, that's yeah, my that running really... joke. When we find things in the Book of Mormon that are just absolutely incredible and amazing, it's like, well, you know, I guess Joseph Smith just was a good guesser. He guessed a lot. He guessed a lot, a lot, really well. <laughs> you know, you know, it's uh, th- there was a question I was talking with uh, with a friend today. There's a question about knowledge and about how we gain the kind of knowledge that we you know we're supposed to gain in this life. And it's since I've been studying the Beatitudes, and as I've studied Alma 5 this week, and the Beatitudes kind of leapt at me from the page, I've had a lot of introspective moments in asking myself how it is that I can possibly keep back here to what Alma says, that I have experienced before a radical change of heart. I have experienced like what the the people of King Benjamin said, that we've, we've lost our disposition to do evil, but to do good continually. I've had those moments in my life. But I love what he says. Can you feel it now? Is is this your is this your reality today? And if I'm honest with myself, I, I have to say that you know maybe most of the time, no. Um, I have a lot of work to do. And so what I have noticed with the Beatitudes and of, and of seeing this, the question always arises from those that I've talked to about the Beatitudes. Well, how do we how do we become poor in spirit then? How how do we make that first step? And what I've noticed at least has worked for me, and, and, so I, and so I share it, and maybe it works for, for others, is that there's this scripture I love in the New Testament where someone comes to Christ and asks, what lack I yet? And I absolutely love that question. I've done all these things in my life. I've kept all the commandments. I've done everything I can. What lack I yet? Now, when I've done that, when I've taken that question to the Lord, he's answered me. Something always comes to my heart. Something always comes to my mind. 
Something always, something always comes. Now, usually because of my, my cultural LDS training, I'm like, all right, get up and let's make an action plan. You know, the, you know, figure out how to, how to overcome doing this. But recently I've taken more of the approach that when I ask Lord, what lack I yet? I do get that. I do get something that comes pretty quick almost every single time. But now, I'm far more reflective on it. And based on the Sermon on the Mount, and you'll hear me say it a lot, but I'm learning to have joy in sitting with God. And what I mean by that is is when it says that Christ went up on the mountain and he turned around and he sat down, that imagery for me is sacred. Because now, whenever I read the Beatitudes, I read it in the presence of just sitting with my Savior. And so now as I'm sitting with my Savior, and I ask him, okay, what lack I now? And then he's like, this and this and this. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you're right. And uh, and the times when I just get up from that moment to go create a battle plan to to fix it, I've missed such an amazing opportunity because when I actually sit with my Savior in those moments, there comes this warm and almost sometimes overpowering feeling of love that my Savior says, yeah, these are some of the things that are next for you. But man, I'm going to be right here with you through everything. And I'm going to suffer right here through it with you. And I'm going to be here with you. And I'm not going to leave you comfortless. Most of my life, I've lived in a way where I've denied myself those opportunities of the follow-up to what Christ has talked about. Yeah, he gives me the things I need to work on, but man, I've missed out on all the love that he has to follow up with it. And so as I've, I've learned in these moments when I pray and I, I meditate and I sit with God and I'm, and I'm like, all right, what like I yet? He tells me. <laughs> and, so, and sometimes it's pretty, it's pretty deep stuff. And I'm like, oh, oh man, that, so that's going to be a rough one. And, and, and he's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, yeah, this yeah, is I know because uh, that's what I told you yesterday and the day before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the week before that, and and I'm like, oh yeah, I still, I've, I've still got to do that. And he's like, yeah, I know. And then it's like, but I st- I'm still here for you, and he's never given up on me. And he, and it's, and it's an amazing this just loving patience of, and it's not even like patience that he would rather be somewhere else. It's that. He comes to me and he comes and in those moments, this is, there's nowhere else in the world I would rather be. And so in that moment, like when Joseph Smith talks and when he reads about, uh, about James, that if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who abradeth not. I've come to find deep value in that abradeth not because it's not that God just won't make fun of you or chastise you for the question. But man, he just wants to sit with you with it. Man, he just, all of us. He wants to have those moments when he just is there with all of us. And so when Alma comes along, I can see this, this almost sacredness for the question that Alma's asking. If you've experienced this change of heart, when was the last time you sat with God and just let God be with you? I love how that really flows into chapter 7. Because here Alma comes to a people who seem to have been doing this process already pretty well. 
he says at the end of verse 5, My joy cometh over them after wading through much affliction and sorrow. You know, talking about the people in Zarahemla after he did that. You know, you spoke about the joy that can come in this. He says in verse 7, For behold, I say unto you that there be many things to come, and behold, there is one thing which is of more importance than they all. For behold, the time is not far distant that the Redeemer liveth and cometh among his people. Right? Like, Jesus is coming to be with us. That's more important than everything else that I could tell you. He's literally coming in his mortal body to be here as a representation of the fact that he will always come to you and be with you when you're ready for him. And I love how what you were saying also fits into these great, wonderfully profound verses here, 11, 12, and 13. And he shall go forth suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind, and this that the word might be fulfilled, which saith, He will take upon him the pains and the sicknesses of his people, and he will take upon him death, that he may loose the bands of death which bind his people, and he will take upon him their infirmities, that his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. Now the Spirit knoweth all things, nevertheless the Son of God suffereth according to the flesh, that he might take upon him the sins of his people, that he might blot out their transgressions according to the power of his deliverance, and now behold, this is the testimony which is in me. There would be a lot to unpack in these verses, I think, but what's standing out to me right now is the fact that going along with what you were saying is that Christ is there to be with us in all of these things. And he's proven that by his willingness to come and experience all of it. I love how verse 13 says, The Spirit knoweth all things. Christ didn't... He, he already understood all of this. So why did he come? So he could be with us. So that he could show us that he really did experience it. That he really does understand and we could see that example and have it in the scriptures, the example of him actually experiencing it. And so that when he comes and says, I understand, we can say, I know you do. One of the things that has helped transform and, and kind of transcend my relationship with Christ is that we often talk about Christ sacrificing and suffering for us. But when I simply change it to saying that Christ suffers and sacrifices with us, that kind of takes it from an event that happened 2,000 years ago, and that really places that moment right here in a real personal relationship in the right here and now. That that, that relationship is, is a personal relationship of the now, and not of like some, some grand event that happened 2,000 years ago, which obviously, sure. But he is right there. And he has sent that spirit to be there with us, to comfort us and to guide us and to always be that constant companion. It's just, it's, it's absolutely beautiful. And you can see what Alma is really trying to get his people to experience that there, there's this understanding and intellectually understanding the gospel. There's this intellectually coming to be able to explain who and what Christ is and what, what Christ is going to come and do and, and we can give the history of what Jesus' life is going to be, and et cetera. 
but he, it seems to be that he, Alma's wanting to go deeper than that for the people of here of Gideon, where he's really saying, listen, Christ is going to be that person who walks with you. That there's going to be an intimate personal relationship with him waiting for you if you want it. Going on in this chapter, I love the phrase in verse 15. He says, lay aside every sin which easily doth beset you. And I think that goes along with what you were talking about. You know, what lack I yet? <laughs> and then and then, uh, verse 17 has always uh, stood out to me as well because this is something I have experienced. It says, and now behold, my beloved brethren, do you believe these things? Behold, I say unto you, yea, I know that ye believe them. And the way I know that ye believe them is by the manifestation of the Spirit which is in me. I've had experiences, very sacred experiences, where I've been teaching the gospel or participating in a discussion of the gospel, I should say. And in that moment, the Spirit has revealed to me the thoughts and intents of the other person. Because... Man, I don't. Maybe, maybe this is inex, inexplicable, but just it allows me to understand who they are and my relationship with them, <clears throat> my relationship with God, their relationship with God. And it's like Alma says here: I can tell that they believe what is said because the Spirit is uniting us in that moment in what we're experiencing. I don't know. I, I can't think of any other words to explain it. It's kind of like we've ju- what we've just been talking about. It, it's one of those things you have to experience, but it's happened to me a few times, and um, it's something special. I'll say that. Yeah. I love Alma so much because, like you said at the beginning, Ben, he's just... He's this guy, unlike any other character in the Book of Mormon, that we see more of his development than anyone else, than maybe Nephi. Like, Nephi doesn't go through the whole major transition that Alma does, at least that we know of. And well, so he doesn't Alma... tell us about it. <clears throat> we only get <laughs> Nephi's words himself, you know, we only get Nephi's narrative. Here we have this third-person uh, Mormon narrative, which... It, you know, it's so fascinating to me to know, you know, what records is Mormon pulling from in order to piece together this story of Alma. But obviously it interested him enough to follow the strain, right? You know, because he, he really follows Alma along here. Yeah, at some point I really want to delve into this concept of just how much now Mormon is narrating the text. Because up until Omni, it was just word for word lifted from what Nephi was talking about, right? And from the what they were specifically writing in the plates. But now from Mosiah on, it really is now the Book of Mormon. Mormon is now the historian. He's going through and we're going to get a lot of his a lot of his intentionality, his purpose, what he's pulling from. Um I, I'm we I might share an article my wife wrote once about uh, about some evidence that she found of of Mormon possibly having a change of mind about a few things as he's writing the texts and some evidence there about even as it pertains to I'd Warren. I'd be surprised if he didn't. Right? I, I mean, I, and, and, I can't it, read the Book of Mormon without changing my ideas about something. Certainly he couldn't have written it without changing his ideas about something. Absolutely. So uh, that's going to be a lot of fun to get into about just how much of his narrative frames how we interpret the Book of Mormon. But next week we're going to get into Ammonihah. And man, I <laughs> there is absolutely no way to do justice to the uh, the next 
four to five chapters of Ammonihah. Is this copy um, and paste from our other podcast? I think we might. I, I think I think next week will probably just be like a uh, a bit of a copy and paste, um, or like an overview. And then Ben and I, for for the listeners who may not know, Ben and I did a uh, a multi series podcast years ago for a, a group called Ilias Liberty, where we really went into the story of Ammonihah. And man, I'm going to listen to a lot of those this week, um, just to get caught up on it again. But that, man, that was some of my favorite. My, some of my favorite podcasting back then. That was just, that was just good stuff. I, I, I adore, I just absolutely adore the next several chapters of Ammonihah and what that means and, and how that really sets up uh, a message and of a theme for the rest of the book of Alma. It's absolutely incredible. And it's very fascinating how Alma has, is preaching all this to the people, right? And now he has to go and the next city he goes to teach He's got to live it. And um, I don't know if he was prepared for it or not. I mean, the Lord thought he was prepared, and, and he, I, I think he does a pretty good job um, in the end of, of dealing with it the way the Lord wants him to. Um, but I don't know if he had quite the idea of what was coming. Yeah, I... <laughs> I don't think he had any clue whatsoever. This is going to be a completely different experience for him. And especially the context now as we've come in with uh, with Alma chapter 4 and 5 and, and his why he's out on, as a missionary. And that's going to add such a rich layer in, uh, to talk about this. So, yeah, I'm looking forward. So until next week, I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thanks for listening. 